one more time, and then we will spend some time in, in the Word. So let's go ahead and let's, let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you, and once again we thank you so very much for Jesus. We thank you for the things that we have afforded to us because of him and the promises that we have in Jesus, that if we believe in you, regardless of what happens, we know that your promises are made upon your character and that those promises are sure, and we know that we have sound promises with you. So we thank you so very much for Jesus. We thank you for this time that we have to contemplate you sending your son to come down and add on humanity. And we are very thankful that you've decided to glorify yourself through our salvation. And uh, as we contemplate the implications of that salvation, we just ask that your spirit would be working in our heart. We thank you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 2. Just starting in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, so this would be Herod the great, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So we see that Jesus is born... Then the star rises and then the wise men come. So once again, I just want to apologize to all of you that have nativity sets, that have the wise men at the birth of Jesus. It's unbiblical. They came later. No, we understand it, right? They have them there because that's what they came to do. They came to worship. And we understand that the, in our mind, the, they're, they're one of the people, one of the people that comes to visit Jesus. Important people. So they come from the east. We don't know exactly where they are from the east. These wise men are magi. They are people that watch the star, predict the future from the star. They thought that their God was talking to them through the stars and through the way that the stars would lay upon the sky. So they would look at the stars and go, okay, well, this is what's going to happen. Or this, this, is, uh, this is the will of the gods, right? So they, they observe the stars. They see, this, they see the star. And so they come into Jerusalem and they say, where is he who's born king of the Jews? What they knew about the king of the Jews is all conjecture. Maybe they had the book of Daniel. Maybe they have the Old Testament. We don't know. All we know is that they see the star. They know that this star is unique. It's a divine thing. It's not a normal thing that they see. And so they realize that there's something significant happening. And this one is a king. And notice what they say. It says, we saw his star when it rose. And then there's this phrase, and have come to worship him. That's what they did. Now, what they understood as worship and what we understand of worship of Jesus Christ are probably two different things. There is one commonality, though. They understood that as they were going to bow down before a human, that there was something divine about this person. We would say that's an understatement of how we view Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. So when we worship him, we worship him as we would worship God. And so for the month of December, we've been looking and probing into this question of, or this statement, we have come to worship him, and we've been asking about our own worship. Remember, two weeks ago, we asked the question, what is worship? We talked about several things that are difficulties in our definition of worship. So the first 
difficulty is we've all been to church. We've all done something that somebody called worship, and that skews our mind of how we define the phrase, right? I've been in a church. I've been in a worship service. Obviously, this is worship, and I've been to multiples. And whether the church had a good definition or a bad definition really doesn't matter because in our mind we have this experience that has been called worship, and that skews how we think about worship. One of the other things is that we have friends who talk about worship. They might have a good definition of worship. They might have a bad definition. They may have a good idea or a bad idea. We don't know. But to suggest that our friends don't influence us and influence how we think about certain words and definitions is incredibly foolish. Of course they influence us. In fact, there's even times where I've even caught myself using the word worship in a way that's probably not the most biblical way of using it. One of the other issues is that we read the Bible in English. And so when we see the word worship, we just go, that's worship. But as we spent the first week, we went through and we looked at the six words that are used in the original language that we that are translated worship, right? We looked at two in the Old Testament. We looked at four in the New Testament. And we could categorize worship and those words for worship into two basic definitions Uh, Two of the words and the primary words that are used has the idea of bowing down, bowing low. So the Greek word is proskuneo. Proskuneo means to kiss the ground. And and, and the idea is, is that when I bow down, I'm saying you are far worthier than I am. You are you are so significant. Do you deserve respect? A lot of respect, a lot of respect, more respect than I'm worthy to receive. So that's the bowing down. And then you, when you kiss the ground in front of a dignitary, it's suggesting you are not only worthy of respect but affection, and I'm not even worthy to look at you. I'm not, even, I'm not even worthy to show you that affection. The only thing I'm worthy to do is possibly kiss the ground that you might step on to demonstrate my affection and devotion and respect and, and your worthiness. This word has been, for us, when we think of God, he's the one that's only worthy of this ultimate respect, of our bowing down, of this adoration, and that one of the initial thoughts of worship is, I am not worthy. We don't deserve to do this. This is an incredible, incredible blessing, the fact that we get chance to even know his name, let alone sing his praises. We are not worthy to do that. And so our heart must be one that's face down on the ground saying, I am not worthy, but you are supremely worthy. The, the second word, uh, or the second idea, is this idea of service, that God gives us what he wants us to do, and when we do that, that's a good thing, and he calls that a good work or a service. It's used in the Old Testament to refer to the Levites and the priests as they were working in the temple, and for us as believers, it's a response of God's grace and of his mercy. We are to serve him. We are to do what he says. And as creatures, we don't have the right to say, God, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to do A, B, C, and D. Hopefully you like it. If not, that's what I'm giving you. The heart of worship says, what do you want? What kind of attitude should I have? What are you asking me to do? And then I do that. I do that with the right attitude. I do that with the right words, the right motions. It's, it's, a, it's correct. And so our definition of worship the working definition that that I'm using is this, is that worship is 
an appropriate response of love to God. That's what worship is. I'm responding appropriately because I love him, I adore him, I respect him, and the the goal is for his honor and his glorification. That's what worship is. Last week, we discussed the question, who should worship? The answer was twofold. On the one hand, everyone should worship. Everyone's expected to worship as a creature. But as we saw, not everybody can worship. Only believers can worship because they're the only ones capable of doing that because they have a right relationship with God. They have the Holy Spirit. They're the only ones that respond appropriately, right? Because the definition of worship is responding appropriately. If you don't if you don't accept God, if you don't know God, if you don't accept the gospel, you're not coming to him in an appropriate way. To suggest that you can then worship after that is incredibly insane. This week, we're going to ask a different question. We're going to ask the question, when should we worship? When should we worship? Now, before I even start untangling this, I want to say this. When I think of worship, this appropriate response to God, from my love for him, for his honor, and for his glory, I realize that there are various things that happen in my life where that appropriate response is different from other areas. Let me give you an example. When I'm alone, spending alone time with the Lord, my appropriate response is far different than when I'm with my family. Right? That's a different response. The way that I respond with inside of my family and the way that I respond with those maybe like at a supermarket or I'm driving my car or at a football game with somebody else, that's a different response as well. Those are different from what we do here. So there's different appropriate responses at different times. And each of those things require our different times. So, for example, personally, as we're going to see, I should be worshiping all the time. That's the answer, by the way. When should we worship? Right now. Forever. Right? Right now. Always. From this point on. I should always be personally worshiping. Right? There should never be a time where a Christian is not worshiping. We're always worshiping. Everything I do is an appropriate response, or should be an appropriate response of God's love. That's worship. So I should always be worshiping. When I come here to this public worship, that's different. And so I want to deal with both of those, the personal side and the corporate side. So I'm going to answer the question two ways, right? So I'm going to ask the question, when should we worship personally, right? Me, myself, with the Lord, just me and the Lord, and then we're going to talk about this time. What, what is this? And when, when should this happen, what we're doing right now? So when should we meet together publicly? And we're going to look at the New Testament. But let's first look at this question of personally. When should we personally, when we're not inside the church and we're just living life, when should we worship? The obvious answer that I think everyone would give if we were giving out a quiz, would be always. I don't know of anybody that would say a different answer. Well, let me put that back. There's our people that would say a different answer. But those who are biblical and understand the scriptures, you would say always. And because I understand that there are people who might have different answers, I think it is important to at least show you a couple passages out of Thousands of passages that, dis- that answer this question of when should we worship. 
And this morning, I just want to point to two passages in thinking of this. First, let's go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's just start in verse 15. It says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as the unwise, but as the wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. So there you go. The idea is the outlook of a believer is to be wise, be discerning, to act in a way that's becoming of a believer, because the days are evil. And so as a believer, I'm looking at how I can be, use my time wisely. For the honor and glory of God, for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. That's what I do. So just by that outlook, by the way, by being very intentional about how I use my time, demonstrates this idea that worship is much more than just singing a song. It demonstrates a lifestyle, and it demonstrates an intentional lifestyle. Then then notice what he says next. He says, therefore, do not be fools, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's worship, doing what God wants. And notice what he says in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And and the sense here is that you are supposed to always be filled with the Spirit, right? As a believer, there there should never be a time in which you're not yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice how the control of the Spirit is compared and contrasted with being drunk with wine. Right? But he's saying, look, you got to be filled with the Spirit. And then notice what he says, addressing, see that? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Singing is part of worship. Let me just say this. Singing is part of worship, and it's a really important part of worship. But I'm just, I just don't think it's the whole thing. It's a part. And, and as believers, we should always have a song in our heart of thankfulness towards Jesus Christ. We should. We should always be uh, singing. But that's not all that worship is. And then notice what he says next. And he says, And giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of the reverence for, for Christ. You see that? Submitting, uh, singing, addressing, always giving thanks, Right? There's a whole bunch of other passages we could go to. There's another one that I think is like a home run passage in dealing with this question. It's found in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. This is uh, Paul here is writing to a church. This church is, uh, didn't have a lot of time with the Apostle Paul. Paul wished he could have shared some more things with them, but circumstance caused him to leave. And so this is uh, his first letter to them after hearing about what was going on in Thessalonica. And, and this is his, his letter. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he gives this admonition of what they're to do. From this point on, Church of Thessalonica, this is what you're supposed to do. And I just want to point this out. In the original language, this is far more obvious because the majority of the commands used from verses 14 all the way down to verse 22 are in the present tense. So these are present imperatives. A present imperative means something that is expected to continually happen, right? So these commands are given, and you could almost, before every single one of them, say, continually 
You all must do this. Okay, that's the force. So notice in verse 14. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the idol. Or you all must continually admonish the idol. And then you all must continually encourage the faint-hearted. You all must continually help the weak. You all must be patient with them all. You all must continually see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Then notice this one. Rejoice always. Verse 17. Pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not continually quench the spirit. Do not continually despise prophecy or God's revealed word. But you all must continually test everything. You must all continually hold fast to what is good. You all must continually abstain from every form of evil. You get the point. When he's talking to them individually with how they're supposed to live their life, there is this continual behavior and appropriate response. This is what worship looks like on a personal basis between you and the Lord. Now there's more, and we're going to talk about that in future times. We're just simply answering the question, when should one worship? And I think that you and I, if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is, we should always be worshiping, right? There's never a time where somebody should catch us and we're not worshiping. By the way, there's this logical implication that I think is important to talk about This then means, if I am worshiping all the time, that my personal worship to the Lord Jesus Christ is not tied to a specific location. If I'm supposed to be worshiping all the time, then that means wherever I find myself, that is where I'm supposed to be worshiping. It also suggests that when I'm worshiping God, there's really not a lot of ritual behind it, right? There's not ritual things that I have to do. It's my appropriate response, And it would suggest that me being nice to the person who is the cashier at at Fred Meyer who accidentally misses my coupon and charges me an extra $5, that my response as a believer is as much of worship as singing a song, if not even more. Think about it. My response of love requires that I'm yielding and abiding to, to the power of the Holy Spirit in order to exhibit love, right? I have to be walking by the Spirit in order to exhibit love. It's possible for someone to not even know the Lord Jesus Christ and sing a song about the Lord Jesus Christ. Or it's also possible for you to be walking in the flesh and sing a song. You want to know how I know it's possible? Because I've done it, and I'm sure I'm going to do it in the future. It's very easy for someone to sing a song and it not be the appropriate response. But acting in love always requires the Spirit and requires the Lord Jesus Christ. In that sense, it's probably a better act of worship than just merely singing a song. So this means then when I'm with my family, that's a time of worship. When I'm with my coworkers, that's a time of worship. When I'm driving in my car, it's a time of worship. I'm in the grocery store, that's a time of worship. When I'm fishing, it's a time of worship. When I'm watching football with somebody, it's a time of worship. Everything I'm doing is a time of worship. Now all of us would say, Caleb, I get that. So then why do we call what we're doing now worship? Is this, are we even supposed to be doing this? Like, 
why shouldn't we all just go up into the mountains and just worship God up in the mountains? Isn't that better scenery, right? Better fresh air. I don't get annoyed by the person sitting beside of me because they didn't take a shower, right? Well, maybe they're actually stinkier if they're on top of a mountain. Why, why, why do this? And is this even important? Like, if I'm supposed to be worshiping all the time, then what's the significance of this? I'd like to answer that. And I'd like to answer that by first starting off by saying this. In our modern church in the United States, we have a terrible view of almost about everything. Especially worship. And a lot of times when we talk about worship, we do that. We put what I do outside of church and what we're doing here, and we put them as opposites, right? I have to choose one or the other. So I either choose by myself or with other people. That's it. I get one or the other. It's a binary choice. When I read the New Testament, I do not see the apostles forcing us to make a choice between individual worship and public worship. And in fact, I see the apostles saying both are needed, important, and necessary reflections of the heart of those who follow Jesus Christ. Okay? So I think this time is important, and the time when you're by yourself with the Lord is important. Both are needed. Both are appropriate responses. They are both obligatory. But we're answering, when do we do this? And this starts to get a little dicey. So I'm going to kind of go through a couple of these texts and trying to answer the question, when do we corporately worship together? Because I think this is a really important question. So let's start at the very beginning. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is a really important text because it's one of the first times that we get a snapshot of the early church and how the early church did things. It shows what they emphasized and things that they didn't emphasize. It's a really good picture of what it originally looked like, and it helps us. It purifies us because, I'll be honest, there's a lot of things that we think are absolutely necessary in the modern church that are not. And the passage like this helps us look and go, okay, those things are fine, they're not sinful, but they're not necessary. These things are the things which are necessary. So just notice in chapter 2, verse 42, talking about the church, and it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now notice this. This This is what they devoted themselves to. And I think that Luke put the apostles' teaching at the beginning because I think the apostles' teaching is the most fundamental. All the other things flow from the apostles' teaching. This is the number one thing that they devoted themselves to, the apostles' teaching. This was it. They were students. And it says, and fellowship and breaking of bread. Now remember, we're trying to answer the question, when should we worship? And it says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing, uh, distributing the proceeds to all as any might have need. And then notice this. And day by day, attending the temple together 
breaking bread in their homes. Now, there's a little bit of a question here of what were they doing in the temple. Were they going to the temple to listen to the apostles teach? Maybe. That's, that's a possibility. Were they going to the temple to do all the temple services? Probably. They did that too. But most likely, they were going to the temple to pray. So notice, the believers spent day after day together praying. Okay? And then what did they do after they were done with the temples? Doing the temple stuff. Then it was, then they would go back to each person's house and they would break bread and receive their food with gladness and generous of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. So we get this idea that the early church was together all the time. They were doing things together all the time. Okay? Now, there's another text that talks about the time of corporate worship. Go with me to the book of Acts. You're already in Acts. Chapter 20. Notice verse 7. And it says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them and intended to depart on the next day. He prolonged his speech until midnight. So we look at this, and first we see they came together on the first day of the week. And once again, there's a little bit of a question. Were they coming together just because the Apostle Paul was teaching? Or were they coming together because this was something that they normally did when they they normally came together? The sense I get is that they're normally coming together on the first day of the week. Okay? That, that this was something that was normally happening. That this was sanctioned by the apostles. And notice that part of this was breaking bread. Now, the breaking of bread does involve a meal. But I think it's a little bit more than just a meal. The early church did this thing called an agape feast. And so basically what it was, it was a, it was a potluck church service which ended with the Lord's Supper, right? So they would do this pretty regularly. It eventually fizzled out because people took advantage of the potluck part, right? So, so it was because of the debauchery that was happening through the potluck that they then stopped doing the whole feast together. We, we don't have time to talk about how that all happened, but j- just know that's probably what happened. And then as a preacher, I really appreciate the spirit of the Apostle Paul as he goes, well, I'm going to be leaving tomorrow and I still got three more points. Let's go to midnight. I like that. I think that's good. I think that means that church leadership, when they're teaching, that if they feel necessary to go to midnight, they go to midnight. So, surprise, we're going to midnight. No, I'm joking. Um, There's another text that's really important in this discussion, and it's in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 Just notice in verse 1, the Apostle Paul is talking to this church, and he is discussing about a collection that is to be uh, collected for the saints who are in Jerusalem, and they're, they're having trouble. And so the church around the world collected money and sent them to Jerusalem believers. Incredible, by the way. That's, that's incredible. And notice what it says in verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia. So just think of this. This is Turkey. Galatia is the area of Turkey. So he's saying, as I directed 
Turkey, the whole country, all the churches, all the fellowships in the country of Turkey, Asia Minor, right? That's the sense. So you also are to do. So this is a universal thing, right? Universal in Galatia and in, and in, in Europe with the, with the Corinthians, or in Asia, all throughout Asia Minor, excuse me. On the first day of every week, each of you should put something aside and store it up as he prospers so that there will be no collecting when I come. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, when you come together on the first day of the week, insinuating that they've been doing this as a regular thing, bring your money and let the church leaders store this so that when I come, I don't have to go door to door to every single believer saying, hey, I'm here for that collection. Do you have that collection? The idea is it's all stored in one place, and when I come, I can just grab it, and then we can send it off. That's the idea, right? And the idea is that he's not only sanctioning this giving, but he's also identifying the fact that now the first day of the week is a day that Christians normally come together and practice worship corporately. This phrase is no longer known as the Sabbath, as it was in the Old Testament when they worshiped on Saturday. This is now the first day of the week and is referred to as the Lord's Day. We see this phrase used in the book of Revelation, where we see the Apostle John, when he receives his revelation of the apocalypse, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That makes absolutely no sense unless there is some concept of a first day meeting. There's one more text I want to show you concerning this issue of when should we worship. And as you can see, there's the sense of we should be worshiping all the time, gathering together all the time, but there becomes this specialness about a Sunday coming together. And go with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians. And let's just go to chapter 3, verse 6. I want to show you one phrase. Now, notice what he says. He says, now we command you. So this is Paul. When he says we, he's speaking as like the authority of the apostles. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according with the tradition that you received from us. Now, Paul uses this word tradition earlier in the book. And the sense you get from this word tradition is three things. One, it deals with the theology of the apostles. The tradition is part of the teaching of the apostles. There is an official apostolic teaching that the church is supposed to follow. Anyone who steps outside of that apostolic teaching is outside of the apostles and is therefore not part of the church. That's the sense. Here, you get the sense of somebody walking, of somebody's lifestyle. So the tradition not only includes the doctrine of the apostles, but includes the ethical teaching of the apostles. There's a specific way that believers are supposed to act. There's a specific ethic of how believers are supposed to interact with each other and those on the outside. That's part of the tradition. The third thing is that there are certain regulations that the apostles have put into place and ordinances that the church is to follow. Right? So we're going to see this here later on when we do the Lord's Supper after we're done singing our last song. 
is that the Apostle Paul says, I receive from the Lord that which I delivered to you, and then talks about the Lord's Supper. That's part of the apostolic tradition. That's an ordinance that churches are supposed to do until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again. One of those other ones is the baptism, right? When somebody places their faith in Jesus Christ, their, st- their first step as a disciple of a Jesus follower is to be baptized, right? That's the idea in the, Old, or in the New Testament. It, it's not baptism doesn't save you. It's a sign that you're now following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an ordinance. And one of these other ordinances, which I see exemplified in the book of Acts, and I see it, that the apostle, the apostle Paul identifies in 1 Corinthians as meeting on Sunday as part of that apostolic tradition. In fact, it is so overwhelming that this is what the apostles taught, that after the apostles died and the disciples of the apostles, and then the, the disciples of the disciples, and the disciples of the disciples were un, universally unanimous on the fact that Christians meet on Sunday, because this is what the apostles taught. It wasn't until others who went against the tradition and introduced other ideas started to introduce other ideas. So you say, well, why do we need to talk about this? So first of all, realize this. Public worship. When should we worship as a, as a group? All the time. We should be together all the time. And we should be praying with each other all the time. We should be fellowshipping with each other all the time. But there is a special time that seems to rise to the top. That's the first among all equals is Sunday. And this seems to be a very important time for us to meet. It's an important thing for you to worship privately. It's important for you to constantly be around like-minded believers. And it's important for you to be here worshiping together. You say, Caleb, why do we need to know this? Why is this even important for Christmas? I'll tell you why. On Christmas morning, when we're giving out gifts, realize this, that that's an opportunity for worship. Christmas morning is as much a time of worship as any other time. And if you're not worshiping on Christmas morning with your family and your friends and the giving out of gifts, you missed it. In fact, fact, if you're not worshiping when you leave, you missed it. If if you're not worshiping in your car, you missed it. Any time that you're walking around and you're not worshiping, you're not doing what God wants you to do. So we're supposed to be worshiping all the time. So why is this important? It's important because it it, it gives the expectation that we are to always be responding appropriately out of our love for God to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's another reason why I think this is really important. It's lamentable. It's lamentable on how bad people's view of worship is and how that affects church attendance. Now, I don't want to sit here and harp on church attendance, because I fully understand that there are circumstances that may preclude somebody from attending to church, and I don't want to become a Pharisee and a legalist by saying, if you're not here every time the doors open, you are, not only are you not a believer, you're the worst kind of person. I don't want to do that. I've been in places where they've done that. I just want to say this as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, and as a church leader, someone who's been studying God's word. My advice is this, Coming to church is important. It's very important. This is something that we should intentionally make time for 
every week. Just as much as you make time to worship God privately, you should also make this something that is important. Okay? It is, this is important. Part of your life of sacrificing for the Lord is sacrificing time to come together with other believers and fellowship, grow, encourage, and so on. This is important. It's lamentable how bad church attendance has been in the United States before COVID. COVID has not helped the issue. Now, once again, I don't want this to sound like I'm saying everyone must come to church. I understand that there's people that have jobs that require them to go to work on Sundays. I get it. I understand. I understand. There's, there's those things. What I'm advising is be intentional about your worship. This is not a secondary issue in your life. This is a very important thing. Another thing that I think is really important in this is because we have such a bad view of worship, we start getting a bad view of what the church service is. So many people, they think worship is just simply singing a song or listening to a sermon. Worship includes that. But many people, as they start thinking about worship as this other thing than what it really is, they start viewing the church as something different. So they view the church as like a country club. This isn't a country club. They view the church as like some sort of event center. Yeah, we'll come when you have something exciting. Or that this is just mainly a place for hospitality and cinnamon rolls on Christmas Eve. Right? Some people think that. There's, there's some people that will text me and go, hey, when are we doing the next thing? Because I want to come to that. That's not good. That's not, that's not what we do. That's not the purpose. By the way, never underestimate the power of a potluck and how it will bring in people. And also realize this. Never underestimate that just because there's a lot of people doesn't mean that God's moving. We should have the attitude that as long as we get together as believers and Jesus Christ is exalted, that's worship. And that's what God wants. And amen for the times that we get together and there's worship. I don't care how many people show up, right? There's also the view that this is just simply just a place for kids, or this is simply just a place for senior citizens. This is a retirement village, right? Everyone puts their own ideas of what it should be instead of going to God's word. This, by learning when we're supposed to worship, I think helps clear our mind of some of those bad ideas and causes us to focus on what, it, what worship really is and what this time really is. This is a time where we appropriately respond out of love to God. And we corporately respond appropriately by singing his praises, by listening to his word, and fellowshipping with one another. And fellowshipping is encouraging them to live for the Lord and looking how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's what we do here on Sunday. That's what we do on all those other services. That needs to be a priority in your life. This is all the response of the Lord Jesus Christ who came and died on the cross for our sins. At this time, I'm going to call up the musicians. We're going to 